Captain, we have them. We've established Transporter Lock, the Star Trek Discovery podcast. Join Ken and Sabriel each week as they explore strange new episodes, seek out new plots and new characters, and boldly go where no podcast has gone before. Hello and welcome to Transporter Lock episode number 68 for Star Trek Discovery Season 3, Episode 8, The Sanctuary. I'm your co-host, Chief Engineer, Ken Gagney. And I am Captain Sabriel Maston. And yeah, today's episode was a <laughs> thing. Ep- it certainly was. And today's episode of Transporter Lock is also a thing. We have a special guest returning to the show after 30 episodes. They've been out in the field. Welcome back, Commander Jessica Janik. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to be here. It's been a long time uh, out in uh, charting stellar clusters and whatnot. So It's true. I, you have gone so far in the last year and a half since you were last on the show, Transporter Lock episode number 38. For those of our listeners who are new to the show since then, can you give us a brief recap of who you are and what your love affair with Star Trek looks like? Sure. Uh, so my name is Jessica. I, um, my love affair with Star Trek, uh, I've been in love with Star Trek since I was a kid. Uh, I have seen all of Star Trek except for the last season and a half of Enterprise, which I'm currently working through. Um, I just adore all of it. I, I don't, I don't care, uh, what anybody else's opinions are. Star Trek is, is wonderful. Um, in all of its incarnations, except for Star Trek V, the search for <laughs> Shatner's ego. Um, and unfortunately, we found Shatner's ego. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, I'm, aside from that, I, uh, am an engineer. Uh, I have lived all over the U.S. and, um, currently living in the San Francisco Bay Area. Which is a change from the last time you were on the show. I believe we were both in the Boston area when we last spoke, and now we're both on the West Coast. That is correct. We are far closer to Starfleet Academy than we were before. I want to go to Starfleet summer camp. I don't know if I do based on what I've heard. <laughs> That's not a thing. It should be, though. It should be. I mean, I, who here didn't want to go to space camp as a kid? Come on. True. Very true. <laughs> oh, no one's arguing that it shouldn't be a thing. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, this week, the Sanctuary was a thing. We had a lot of stuff going on. We went to Book's homeworld, met his non-biological brother. They got rid of some sea locusts while fighting off Oxyra of the Emerald Chain. We got to see Adira play the cello and Stamets play the piano and Detmer fly Book's ship. So that's the recap. That's what happened, in case you missed it. Where do we want to start this week? There's so much that happened. Why don't we talk about the villain? We finally had a villain for this season. You got to have a good villain for every season, right? And we finally got to meet Osira, the Orion of the Obsidian Order. What's our impressions of this villain? For me, he's like, okay, we, uh, I don't know. She's cool, I guess. But I, I mean, meh. Yeah, I wrote in my notes, villain is excellent. And then I've been thinking about it over the course of the the last night or two. And I'm I'm also like now a little mixed on it. Like I think um I think her performance is good. I think her motivations are good. Um but uh I think the thing that uh is kind of meh for me is there is a sense of a little bit of genericness of the character. Yeah. yeah, I found I found the way she treated her nephew to be somewhat predictable. I mean, she implied mm-hmm. that she killed her nephew's father, who is presumably her brother or brother-in-law, and now she went ahead and killed him as well. I mean, I we kind of saw that coming, and I was kind of sad to see that particular Orion get written off, because I thought he was a fun character. You, do, you like Todor? I thought he was kind of funny in how inept he was. He didn't know he was inept, though. And that lack of self-awareness I found charming. To me, he reminded me of a college dude who's trying to show off for his <laughs> uncle. Uh, and Well, your aunt, but showing off for some family member and failing utterly. Just like, yep, college bro. <laughs> yeah, you're not wrong. <laughs> I would agree with that. Would completely agree. When she was holographically projecting onto the Discovery, I appreciated that she 
was willing to engage in dialogue. And it's not that she was interested in diplomacy. I just felt like she was coming from such a position of power that she felt that she had the time to spare, that she could engage in this banter and just defeat all of Saru's arguments and say, look, we're going to blow up this planet. I mean, I thought that was kind of ruthless as she just said, I'm going to kill the population of this planet unless you hand me over this one prisoner and the needs of the many we the needs of the few it kind of reminded me of when cisco started making planets uninhabitable just that he could capture the mckee leader I, I i thought she was kind of ruthless in that respect i can see that i can see it she just felt like i just feel like this is so tropey it didn't have the pizzazz yeah i, w- I would second that it very much and i would actually say that about this whole episode definitely felt a little tropey, a little cliche, uh, even though some of it was absolutely wonderful. Uh, there were, there were some aspects of it where I was just like, I've seen this before many times. Can you give us some examples? Sure. Uh, the, um, the scene, uh, down on the planet with book and his brother, uh, his brother comes out with the gun and book is like, you know, shoot me, do it. And then you've got the, the brother like struggling to pull the trigger and then grunts and puts the gun down before uh, admitting he can't do it. Um, We've seen that in so many movies and TV shows and it gets very tiring. Um, The, uh, save the day kind of approach. I really loved seeing Detmer do everything that she did, which I will probably, we'll probably talk more about later, but there was an aspect of like, um, coming in and saving the day, uh, last minute, perfect decision. And also the, the, I guess there's been kind of a bit of a discovery cliche that's happened with this season and was definitely true in this episode. And that is, um, that Burnham is always the person that has to go do the thing. Um, and it just felt a little repetitive, a little cliche, a little tropey, a little old. Did Burnham actually do anything this episode? I agree with you. That is a cliche in this season of or in discovery period. Yeah. And we mentioned that in the past too. I think one other tropey cliche thing is just like the villain um, fits that classic um, gangstery trope of I have no scruples. I'm willing to do whatever. Um, And I suppose we don't know much about them yet, so we can't speak to it too, too much, but um, it felt that way from this, from this episode's perspective. This whole episode for me felt all over the place. I guess the A story was what Quijon that's what I felt like I cared the least about. And especially Mm -hmm. the brothers fighting. Like it's the same reason that I hated civil war, uh, Marvel movie, civil war. Cause it's just two dudes fighting who won't talk it out. Uh, that does nothing for me. And that was more or less what the whole Quijon subplot or plot. I don't know, which was the A story. I think that is. Uh, and that did nothing for me. I like the rest of the episode much better than anything to do with that planet. I felt like Book's brother was sort of in the same position as Lando Calrissian, where he had to make a deal with the bad guys because the alternative was to be obliterated. He had he was in a difficult position, but when it came right down to it, he couldn't turn in his brother, just like Lando helped Han Solo and his crew escape. Well, not Han. He got frozen, but mm-hmm. the rest of them. I can see that. I can see that. But um, I, I would say that The Empire Strikes Back did it far better. <laughs> Yes, it is one of the best Star Wars movies, and I'm, I would never argue that a single episode of Star Trek is likely to hold up to The Empire Strikes Back. Like, even the end when they had the Care Bears thing, where like, all right, we're all just going <laughs> to wish really hard, and we're going to shoot our Care Bear stair beam from the Discovery to the planet. All right, wish really hard. Okay, we fixed it. Uh it just did nothing for me. That was so corny. I can just picture the, the actors sitting there just staring. Oh, they did it. The bugs are going away. Oh, goodness. And they're staring at this green screen. I just felt so awkward. 
So I didn't rewatch the episode. I feel like I missed a little something. Was the discovery amplifying the brothers' empathic powers? Yeah. Yeah. Or were they amplifying like the communication amongst the sea locusts? I mean, it's something there. It's the same effect. Yeah, yeah, I would say that it's the same effect. And I would agree uh, that to me, especially watching them chanting, uh, it felt like a, a cheesy scene out of, say, like Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah. And I love Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but it didn't, it, it felt out of place. I think that's ultimately how I feel is that the, the chanting part of it felt really out of place. Yeah, I don't even know what effect the chanting had. I and mean, did it just help them focus their powers? Because it clearly was not a magic spell. They did not have to use these words, I would hope. One thing I did like about the interaction between Book and his brother was whenever they said goodbye to each other, whether it was on the planet or on the ship, they would clasp each other behind the neck and they would touch their foreheads. And just any sort of physical affection between men is not something I feel like we see a lot of in pop culture nowadays. And I, my heart was warmed to see that. Would agree. I thought that was a nice touch and it felt organic. Yeah. Um, it, it, I, I really enjoyed seeing that as well. Yes. It's a small thing, but sometimes those things matter. Let's, can we, can we talk about how smooth the villain is? S- and by, smooth? By, by that, I actually mean physically, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the 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 makeup uh, it, for the the um uh, orions uh i think it catches me a little off guard uh it wasn't what i was expecting to see with orions um and i i don't know if it's just that i don't like it or that it's slightly off-putting or distracting i'm not i can't put my finger on what it is about it that really kind of puts me in that weird space i was going through the exact same feels especially i mean even the the andorians to some extent i'm like "Eh." but the orion felt so plasticky so off and then this morning i discovered why uh it's actually a prosthetic that they put on the orions now instead of just painting their face green uh uh, so that was the difference. It's it's basically a plastic or whatever material shell over their face. And it's so different from what we're used to uh, yeah. that it's very off-putting. And maybe it's fine. In the past, I've had, I hate the Klingons in Discovery Season 1. Improved in 2. Hate the movie Klingons in the relaunch. But uh, so, and so I, I've expressed like, I don't know. Why do they keep changing some good things? But I don't know, maybe it's okay here, but it still is off to me as a long-time Star Trek viewer. I, maybe someone else who's just coming into Star Trek now will feel fine with the Orions, but they are very, they feel very plasticky and off. So the last time we saw Orions prior to this season of Discovery would have been, what, on Enterprise? Uh, we saw uh, one in Star Trek 2009, uh, but she was doing the face paint. Um, lower decks. Oh, and lower decks too. <laughs> That's an entirely kind of different kind. I think Ken was going for live action. <laughs> Those cosmetics are very different. I mean, the question as phrased, you are correct, Jessica. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, Bree, you put in our show notes, and I'll include this in a link on transporterlock.com. A time lapse for the actor Ian Lake, who played the Orion in this episode. Uh, how long it took him, the three hours to put the prosthetics on. And that's fascinating that you would think, oh, it's just a single color. It's green. How hard can it be? But it takes that much time. He's one of those actors who gets to be an alien and pays the price for it. (laughs) With time. Yes. Wow. Uh, Let's see. Anything else to say about the quote-unquote main plot of what was happening down the planet, or shall we move on? I mean, it's related, but we find out from Rin, the Andorian, that the Emerald Train Chain, the whole reason why he will uh, is running and the, why they're after him is because they're running out of dilithium. I think it's related. Yes. And so that means the Emerald Chain is going to get desperate, or if they are not already. I didn't find that to be a big reveal. I was under the assumption that in the future, everybody is running out of dilithium. My impression was that um, 
and maybe I read into this wrong. Maybe I need to rewatch the episode at this point. But when Rin was talking about this, I got the impression that he revealed that they were running low on dilithium, but that there was something that they didn't talk about that uh, we just didn't as viewers get to see that was more imperative. But I could be wrong about that. But I agree with you, Ken, that um, everybody's running out of dilithium. So uh, I don't know if that's much news to go ahead. I think the whole idea here is that the Emerald train is doing a desperate grab for last remnants of, we have this huge rain over a large region of space. And if they don't want to lose it, I mean, bad guys don't want to lose their territory. Uh, and so when they run out of dilithium, they're going to be stuck like everyone else. And they can't, they can't, uh, what's the one looking for? Um, uh, use everyone else for their own gain. Exploit? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I, I. it's weird to me that Rin was the person who had this information because we are under the assumption that the Emerald Chain covers a large span of territory and here is this one person on this one slave slash mining planet who knows this one thing. He even said, I'm the only one who knows it, and now you know it too. If he was the only one who knew it, and I was Osira, I would have him killed. <laughs> Especially if he was the only person who ever stood up to me. I would make an example. I mean, I guess they did when they cut off his antenna, but I don't know. It, it seems odd to me that the Discovery stumbled upon the one person that knows this thing. I mean, it's not odd to me because story. Uh, I always put the weird <laughs> plot point in there, but maybe this guy has more importance that we know than we know of yet. Otherwise, you're right. Why would you keep him alive? Mm-hmm. Uh, Although I did, I did yeah. like that he knew the ins and outs of the Viridian ship, and although that was a little cliche, kind of like Picard knows exactly where to shoot the Borg, and everybody else knows exactly where to shoot the Death Star or the Death Moon or the Star Killer or whatever this month's Star Wars is calling it. There's always this one weakness and one person knows exactly where it is. And nonetheless, it did lead to a pretty cool scene with Detmer. Yes. And I, I would also like to add that um, I think there's more to Rin's backstory that we just haven't heard yet because he knows all of this stuff, but we haven't exactly heard why he knows it and what he used to do. We just know that he was punished. And I'm very curious as to what he used to do within the Emerald chain uh, related to Osira. Um, But yeah, aside from that, let's, let's talk about, uh, let's talk about Detmer because, (laughs) ah, Detmer. (laughs) (laughs) Got a little crush. Um, A teeny, teeny little bit of a crush. Yes. Not the only one. No, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump on that wagon. <laughs> uh, I love a fly girl. It's one of my favorite roles in video games as well. Uh, and I used I went to college that was heavily em- had a heavy emphasis in aviation, so fly boys and fly girls were all around. Uh, it was a disaster, Brie. That's my life. I've really enjoyed seeing because um, there definitely has been a bit of a focus on. Uh, Detmer throughout this season where we get to see more of her um, and seeing her arc in previous episodes of her recovering from the trauma. uh, And then now this episode seems to be a bit of a culmination of, of that where she went through that trauma and now she's dealing with it. And she seems to be able to be a bit more healthy, emotionally and focused and able to, to like, deliver and after all of the action cool scenes of seeing her uh flying around in book ship with rin um and then in the mess hall afterwards and like you know getting all hyped up and talking about what happened that was a big big up and a big positive for me this episode i really enjoyed seeing that a lot me too. There were several times this season where Detmer froze at the con and things were a lot closer than they needed to be had she responded in time. You saw her struggling in previous episodes with the new interface that the Federation installed on Discovery. And even this week, she had an alternative interface installed to try to acclimate to that. But this week, she just sort of fell into 
the role she wanted. She said, I can do this. She didn't freeze. She found the controls that she needed. And she, you know, kind of like Luke Skywalker turning off the targeting system. She just was able to do it on her own and she pulled it off. I thought that was a fun scene. I, I thought some of the cinematography wasn't great. I felt like sometimes we saw the ship and not the context. So we were supposed to get this sense of it flying really fast when all we really saw was the viewport into the bridge. But nonetheless, it was really cool to see Detmer in her element. Uh, yeah, uh, as one Redditor put it, the aluminum falcon for book ship. I got a kick out of that. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, Millennium Falcon vibes since we first saw it. But uh, yeah, here, uh, we actually saw a progression for Detmer in an, in a side character. I think the best way they could for a character who's not a main character of the show in the same way that Michael and Saru are. But um, because cause, like we talked about it in the past where, all right, they're showing her going through PTSD, uh, but we're not focusing on her. We just get little snippets of it. And I think it's the best way. Yeah, and not the best way. I think it's they did okay with her for not being a major character in showing her go through her PTSD. And uh, this little scene here is a lot of fun for me, and I'm with her. Give me manual controls. I don't want analog. <laughs> I want analog. I don't want this digital. I push a button. I go right. There's no context. <laughs> it looked a lot like the controls you use with the Oculus Rift. I thought the, the same little thing. Group she had. Yes. Yes. And didn't Riker have a not quite the same device, but analog controls for the NCC 1701E in yep. Nemesis? Yep. Uh, maybe that was his influence here in this episode when uh, uh, he directed this one. And I don't think. Oh, that's right. I don't feel like the direction was bad. I just feel like the writing wasn't up to par. Like, there were some great shots. I'm also going to pull out the, uh, the the nerd here and say it wasn't Nemesis. It was Insurrection because it was Beardless Riker and they were in the Briar Patch, mm-hmm. I think. Oh. And uh, he called out for manual control to do the what was going to be called the Riker Maneuver. Um, right? You're right. Yep, You're honestly, right. that's what I thought you said. So, uh, but Yes. Or, no, I, I was misremembering. I thought he was facing off against Shinzon in the scimitar. But you're right. It was in the briar patch, and he was using the, the ram scoop buzzard or something to collect mm-hmm. the gas from the briar patch. Good call. Yeah, I didn't need a joystick to run straight into the scimitar. <laughs> <laughs> from, what I've, from what I've heard, too, that joystick uh, was literally like a, uh, a redressed, like, store-bought uh, gaming joystick. Oh, yeah. Not th- surprised. Uh, there was talk today, like, apparently... Uh, there's a very common joystick that is used in a lot of TV and sci-fi. And apparently, I don't know if it's the same one from uh, Insurrection, but I did see a very USB-style joystick on the uh, scrap planet uh, in a, in, on a side <laughs> shot. I was like, oh, there it is! <laughs> of course. Yeah. Also, It also reminds me of Ghostbusters 2 when they animate the Statue of Liberty. And what do they do to control it? But they pull out an NES Advantage controller. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. It was, they, mm-hmm. they didn't even try to disguise it. They're like, I'm like, okay, you're, you're going Nintendo. I see who your audience is for this. Got it. <laughs> Anything else to say about Detmer? Or shall we move on to maybe Adira? Well, one last thing I wanted to say. This isn't quite about Detmer, but I suppose Rin was with Detmer. Um I actually really like the updated Andorian look. Um, I, there are, uh, you know, like previously discussed, there are some looks that I mixed on, um, like the Klingons. Um, but I know a lot of these looks had to be updated because we just have more pixels being pushed to our eyeballs. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, I think, the detail that was added to the Andorian look is, is I think it elevates it and um, kind of different than like say Shran. Um, but uh, I do like that some of these alien characters actually feel a bit more alien rather mm. than um, just like humans with a couple of little tiny prosthetics on the, on the, the nose bridge or something like that. So I've been appreciating it. Maybe that's why the Orions feel so off, because they feel so plasticky compared to the other updates. 
Yeah. Well, I will certainly say, though, that the first Andorian, I'm sorry, Orion that we saw way back in the cage slash the menagerie really looked to me like a human painted green. Oh, yeah. And, yes. you know, and that's not to Jess's point, not what aliens should be. They should be really foreign to us. And maybe that plastic look to Orion's, although unfamiliar to us, is sort of what they're going for. That could be. There are a lot of other characters in this episode, Georgiou, Stamets, Culber, Adira. Which one of those would you like to talk about next? Well, you brought up Adira. Let's go yeah. Adira. Yeah, let's chat about them. Well, we finally, uh, Jess, uh, I'm sorry, Bree, you and I had talked about pronouns in previous episodes of Transporter Lock, and it was written into the script this week that Adira's pronouns are them. And I loved that scene. And, and I know from our notes that the two of you did as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? I was happy to have this here. Uh, I mean, this was written for a present day audience. Uh, I put the video of Adira's coming out online. I put a little clip and most people were like, yeah, this is wonderful. But a few people were like, oh, even in a thousand years, we still have to have this awkward conversation with our boss. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I, I get that if you're looking at the show from that point of view. Uh, yeah. Like, ugh. But also, I hear, I mean, it's also a 16-year-old. Maybe they just hadn't come out, figured out things yet. But also, it was, like I said, it was written for current-day audience. And uh, we just haven't had many moments like this on television. And I'm okay with how they did it. I liked it. I enjoyed it. And I love the gay dads. Now, you mentioned this awkward conversation with your boss. I didn't, I mean, I can understand why Adira may have been uncomfortable because they didn't know what reception they would get, but I didn't find it all that awkward. Oh, no, no. Like, okay, uh, and that was it. Not saying, the people weren't saying that this was filmed awkward or the characters were saying in general, in real life, it's awkward, uh, the awkward conversation about talking, talking to your boss. Right, but what I'm saying is that a thousand years from now, it's not awkward. It's just a matter of fact. You just state it, everybody says okay, and they move on. I don't know that I would say it felt that way, though. And it, I think it was presented much like it was modern day, where it is a little uncomfortable and awkward to bring it up with people around you. I felt like it was played that way. Um, I think the performance actually was like, I recognized a lot of the feels in in the performance and the look, the look on Adira's face when getting misgendered and... Uh, um, and then turning and addressing it, it, it looked uncomfortable for them when they were correcting uh, the pronouns. And um, I, I thought that played really well. And actually, I've heard uh, some people in some discords that I'm in were talking about how they, they cried when this moment happened um, because it was so it was presented in a very emotional way. Um, that may not have appeared as such to those who are less familiar with dealing with pronouns. Yeah, I, I've definitely gone through this too. <laughs> and I fully acknowledge that I have not. But, but I not. did like that. And uh, I was cool. I was so happy that they just had like, Stam was like, okay, cool. All right. And uh, but they did have the whole awkward moments of like, okay, let's all look down at the floor for a moment. But uh <laughs> But uh, no, they overcame that, and I love the scene towards the end of the episode when uh, Culber and Stamets are talking over uh, Adira, who they thought was asleep, and we're talking about Adira with pride, like, like yes. the gay dads talking about a kid. Oh, I, I love that. Yeah, it, it. I absolutely love the space dad vibe, and um, I think. Um, Culber and Stamets this season have been absolutely stellar. Um, and this relationship has been, I'm just in, in, in love with this whole relationship that, uh, they have with Adira. Um, they've been exploring it very well and I want to see more. I want to see more. Have we seen much interaction between Culber and Adira without Stamets present? I don't think so. Hmm. That's something I'd like to see more of. We did get to see Adira and Stamets playing together this week. And I found it, like, I'd never noticed a piano on Discovery before. I found it very convenient that it was there. I didn't know that Stamets could play. I'm not surprised that the actor can play, of course. But 
I, I really don't care if there's a history for why there was a piano there and why he knows how to play. I just thought it was a lovely scene. Do you know how long uh, Stamets has actually been practicing piano? Oh, no. How long? Uh, 5,200. I totally messed it up, but I had to do it. <laughs> so twitter.com slash the punder woman for anybody who wants to respond to that. Thank you very much. Okay. Quick side note. Quick side note. I call my high school. We had a jazz ensemble or sing, whatever they call it, a group of people who sang, sing jazz at every event they would sing or major events like homecomings and all that. That was the only uh, they had two songs that one and for the longest time and both of those have a very long time <laughs> so every event i would hear for the longest time or five hundred twenty-five thousand six hundred. i'm like oh my god i hate i ended up hating those songs purely because it's all i heard out of the two that group but what about the time last year when the discovery crew riffed on that song i thought that was pretty neat yeah, and a little cringy. Yeah. Oh, yes, absolutely. No argument there. Oh, it was fine. But uh, back in high school, it put me down on those two songs. Yeah. Yeah, I. Uh, but I, I like the Space Dads. Uh, and it was this episode of Transporter Lock that made me even think of them that way. I really didn't know what sort of relationship Stamets and Adira had. I was probably primarily viewing it as mentor-mentee because they both work in engineering. And I wasn't really sure if Culber fit into that, but you describing it this way makes perfect sense to me. And it's something that I want to see more of. Have uh, I don't know if either of you are watching the ready room after each episode, but uh, that's something that I do religiously. And um, both, uh, I think Ian Alexander and um, Blue. I'm probably, and Blue, uh, I can't remember Blue's full name. Um, both of them were the the um, interview um, for this week's um, uh, Ready Room episode. And they referred to uh, Culber and Stamets, but the actors as well as their space dads. Like they Aww. have a really good relationship. Uh, and I guess there's, I guess there's a big old D and D. Yes. Like group with all of them but yeah apparently there's a really good relationship between the cast um in in those four um and that it makes me happy that the the same relationship we see on screen is present off screen as well absolutely absolutely i just saw that D thing yesterday apparently some of the cast have been playing and some were kind of scared to uh jump in but uh yeah they've been doing one of the beginning beginner adventures uh from wizards of the coast and it's been it was fun to see their little, someone talk about their little progression of what characters they're playing and such. Neat. Yay. Uh but more about Adira, one more moment. Uh they said that Grey is no longer talking to them. Right. And mm-hmm. the way they had Grey appear is always a hint of is there more going on or is this just the manifestation so we can see Adira going through the fields. And I'm st- suspecting it's more just the manifestation thing and it's not that gray is hiding it's that adira is feeling more comfortable uh i mean adira is still figuring out how to be a how to have a symbiont and even says that they wake up some days never knowing who they're going to be uh but it still feels like they're coming into their own and we might see gray less not because uh there's something nefarious going on but adira is just feeling more comfortable I personally, I I hope it's the former though, because I do want to see more of Gray. Oh, I would love to. Uh, yeah, I I I kind of hope it's a bit closer to that episode of TNG with the invisible friend, uh, except for with a better outcome in the end. Yes, that was Nikki Cox, by the way, that little girl. Oh wow! <laughs> right. No, I I agree. I think when you're a fully integrated trill you don't think of your past hosts as separate people you just see them as aspects of yourself and so that's why i was concerned when we saw adira talking to gray like that shouldn't really be how you experience being a trill as far as i know i've never been a a trill and i don't mean to project but i think that as adira becomes more comfortable with their previous hosts we will see less of them as separate entities and I agree with you. I love seeing 
in Alexander. And I would love to see more of that Hector and that character. I do have a question. Um, do you think that with this being Star Trek, that Adira is actually talking to a gray alien? <laughs> this is all the time. The grays were <laughs> just this character. <laughs> I just had to make that joke. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, I got <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, one, one thing, just a quick jump back. Um, we, we, I guess, suppose we haven't really talked about this, but we did talk a little bit about Burnham and book. Um, and I just want to know if you have any thoughts on their, their, their ship name there. Um, like, is it, is it Boonem? Is it is it Burbook? What what is it? In the past, I've mentioned like I hadn't given much thought to them because it's like uh, hetero. Uh, <laughs> but, Fair. Uh, uh, so I had not, but I like. Uh, what would you say Burbook? Uh, uh, I like that. I I really don't like censorship, so I don't want to say book burn. <laughs> <laughs> However, it is feels kind of book burn feels kind of cute. Uh, in this sense, and not in <laughs> and it does it does roll off the tongue a little better too. Well, I, I think in order to open up more possibilities, we need to incorporate book's first name, which is Cleveland, and maybe go with Burnland. Mm-hmm. No, Burnland. No. <laughs> well, I mean the other the alternative is what like Cleveham. <laughs> well, yeah, it's a vegetarian. I don't like that either. Burnland, I think, is is too close for comfort in California. Um, <laughs> that's true. We you had a difficult fire season this year, and probably still are. Yeah, it, not not so much in the Bay Area, but uh, I I guess LA has some fires still going on. Okay. Yeah. Well, we will leave that as an exercise to the listener. If you want to tweet at us at Transporter Lock with your recommendation of how to collectively describe Michael Burnham and Cleveland Booker. We would love to share your suggestions on future episodes of the podcast. I still want to know how Cleveland Booker came up with the new name, Cleveland Booker. He said yeah. there's a story behind it, yeah. and he wasn't going to tell it this episode. Yeah, I still just want to know it. That's just my thoughts. Thinking out loud. Maybe it'll be a short. Maybe. Ooh, that'd be fun. I would watch that prequel. And then he's just watching yeah. like episodes of uh, <laughs> TV or, or uh, like, sees uh, Drew Carey singing about Cleveland Rocks. And, uh, <laughs> or maybe he's watching the movie Howard the Duck when he arrives in Cleveland. What a strange name for a planet. <laughs> it could be the MCU crossover we've been dying for. Dying for? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I'm speaking for myself there. Oh. Uh, you know, another phrase or term that we need to figure out is what Saru is going to say to make things happen on the bridge. I love this cute little scene. Uh, uh, This also goes into Tilly becoming the XO. Uh, Mm -hmm. Tilly's helping him figure that out. And I loved him trying trying some things on. I thought it was just cute. I thought it was hilarious a sign that you and I have talked about Brie at the end of each transporter lock. And I, I really enjoyed it. And I liked the looks on everybody on the bridge every time Saru said, like, execute. And they were all like, what? 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 Did he? <laughs> oh, okay. I guess we'll do that. And it just happens so many times. I'm like, Saru, you're just not getting it. You just just don't make it a thing. <laughs> yes. it's To me, it really felt like uh, you, you don't make your own nickname. Like, it just happens. <laughs> oh, same same thing. Same thing with, like, your your bridge command call out. Like it just happens. You got to let it, let it happen naturally and it won't feel cringy. But also this is a crew that is displaced in time. They've never heard make it. So, I mean, he could just borrow that and claim it's his own or engage like the computer. Right. Give me an updated list of sign offs of captains. Uh, right? Just cause, but you know, I was talking to Shar who has been on the show, a friend of the show. Uh, I was like, what other, what have other captains said? And right. like, all we have had really is Picard and uh, 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 Pike. Others haven't really had a catchphrase for saying, let's go. Or it's just like Janeway would say, do it. Or 
Let's go. Yeah, I would agree. It's not really necessary, but uh, I I genuinely think this is fan service, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, totally. And it's fan service that I'm okay with. Uh, I suppose w- we have had the lower decks. Uh, there's, there was one there, too. I don't remember what it was now. I don't but hmm. Yeah. Oh, well. It was awkward there too. And like a lot of the times, a lot of the things that we saw in lower decks are coming up in discovery too. And it's interesting. Like, these like what? Space slugs. Uh, oh, yeah. uh, Burnham similar to uh, what's her character in lower decks? <laughs> who is always the ensign who's always trying to get herself demoted. D de- or demoted. The, the star of the sh- show besides Boimler. Not Boimler, yeah. Um, I can't remember either, See? which is unfortunate. Uh, but in any case, uh, wow! Back at Mariner, Mariner, Mariner. Oh, there we go. Like it just seemed like using similar jokes in both shows. Uh, like, oh, like the worm thing in this episode, first episode of Discovery, was the same as Boimler getting e- similar to Boimler getting eaten wearing a worm bug thing in the first episode. There, yeah. That's a good or, call out. I I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, and here, uh, Mariner and Burnham always doing things their own way, uh, and then here we make a weird, awkward call out about uh, our catchphrase. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but it's like we just heard these a few weeks ago. These jokes a few weeks ago. I bet it's not even intentional either, because there's just completely different writers' rooms for all of those. Yeah. And the when when production was happening on each of these, it's not like they were. Um, you know, aware of what was going on because this was produced much earlier than I think when Lower Decks was in in gear. So it's un, un, uh, uh, unclear on who we can blame for what. Uh, <laughs> but I agree with you that the 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 hits are the same. Yeah. Although we have not yet seen anything like factual from Lower Decks become canon in other series. Not that there's been a lot of opportunity, but like, for example, we saw Discovery refer to TOS, TNG. We saw Lower Decks refer to TOS, etc. But we haven't seen Discovery directly say, oh, this character from Lower Decks, etc. And maybe that's because Lower Decks happened in between the time jump from Season 2 to Season 3, so they wouldn't know that. But Maybe we'll see a reference to the Titan or something. That'd be neat. <laughs> yeah, just wait till next season when they had a chance. But we did briefly mention that Tilly is coming to her own as an XO, and I love the scene where Rin comes into the captain's room, and Tilly says, you want to try that again with the respect it deserves? And just other opportunities she had to stand up to this guy. I thought that was very um, appropriate for the character, that we're seeing her growth and her ability to stand up for herself and for others. I liked that. Even at the end of the episode, she's, uh, well, Detmer is talking about what happened on the Aluminum Falcon. Um, uh, <laughs> I think that's a great name still. Uh, besides Bookship. Uh, she saw him, uh, Rin, the Andorian, just sitting on his own, and he's like, I'm just as important as the cat. And uh, she's like, <laughs> but she goes over there and sees him sat, or down, and like, uh, cut it with the sad Andorian t- uh, thing. You're a hero too. But she went over there and just like started talking to him up. Like, uh, I just felt like an officer should or an XO should, even if he's not part of the crew. Uh, she did like a very Riker thing and just like went off and talked to someone else who was also on that mission and, you know, checked up on him. Absolutely. I, I'm actually very hopeful that this ends up being a permanent appointment and not just a acting first officer because i think tilly is excellent in in this uh role yeah the twitter thread last week that we referenced from susan arndt became after transporter lock aired a very lengthy conversation about what is expected of an xo and whether or not tilly has that capability and i was dubious not that i'm questioning it from a narrative perspective i think she's the right choice for this season of discovery but i wasn't sure that she had what it takes to for example take over the captaincy should saru become unavailable and after this week i'm warming up to that possibility there was a lot of talk in that thread about like experience and i'm like she's gone through a whole lot in a very short time span 
Uh, I mean, it's still just a blip in her whole lifespan, but uh, she's gone through a lot. Uh, and like I said last week, like when when it was first brought up that she's going to get this uh, or hypothesize and then turn out the next week, like I was like, yeah, right. And then as it gone on, like, you know what? This makes perfect sense. I enjoy this more and more each week. Yay. And, and honestly, there's precedent for someone with very little experience ending up in the captain's chair. Kirk. Yep. <laughs> I think that was brought up too. It's funny how you are coming up with a lot of the same like, things we came up with, but with like three of us putting our heads together, you're doing it on your own. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so good job. Your your experience out in the field is uh, uh, helping you greatly. <laughs> well, that's what happens when you're, you know, out charting gaseous anomalies. <laughs> oh, great. Uh, Saru is also doing his job as a captain and he helped piece together some of the puzzle of the signal that they detected from the point of origin for the burn. I thought that was an interesting scene. I'm surprised that Saru thought of something that seemed kind of basic that the engineers hadn't thought of, but I was glad that when they, when the camera zoomed in on Saru's eye and it got bigger, I was afraid that they were doing something similar like when they zoomed in on Arium's eye when Control was taking her over. Oh, same. I thought Saru was like hearing something that was aimed at, I don't know, Kelpian brain frequencies or something. And that was not the case. Maybe he just has a different hearing range than humans, which would be perfectly reasonable. And uh, there, there's now a puzzle here. There is a Federation distress signal being emitted from the point of origin of the burn. And we don't know who it is, why it's there, and why so many different peoples are interpreting it as a song. I just wanted to, to comment on how, um, when I saw that scene, like like you, I had that same initial worry. But then once I realized what was going on, I was like, oh, Frakes, Frakes, you're so masterful at this. I am I am very impressed with how this was handled uh, and and the way that 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 was done. So that was my call out in that moment. I I just I just love Frakes directing the way that it was a uh, s- several steps. Everybody collaborating to pull apart all these different puzzle pieces. No, like the the shots to indicate like the close up on the eye and the ear. Um, to indicate like I immediately after that got the feeling of. Oh, he's got a potentially a different hearing range. That's exactly where I went with it. And uh, I thought that the way the shots were were pieced together really successfully landed that. Um, once once you got to the point of identifying the sound, um, rather than like at, at first there was that initial moment, but after like a couple of 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 shots that were cut in. I was like, ah, oh, that was done so perfectly. I like that. He, yeah, he does a great work. And I've mentioned the show a few times, but Delta Flyers, Robert Duncan McNeil, who used to play Tom Paris, he is a director now too. And he talks a lot about directing and he'll talk about shots that he thought didn't work on Voyager and did, or is this cool? Uh, or how, how something just really didn't work. Uh, in a strong way. And, and he just goes into it. And I find it fascinating to hear things from the director's point of view of what they were going for in the scene. Yeah. And you can just feel Jonathan Frakes all over. just what everything he does. He just has this extra care and he knows Star Trek so well. Uh, he does good there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hearing, hearing Will Wheaton talk about um, what it's like working with Frakes. Anytime he talks about it on the ready room, I'm just like, oh, that sounds like so wonderful. And I wish I could be in there. The fly on the wall uh, or even just present as a human um, in, in uh, behind the scenes when those scenes are being shot. It just sounds so wonderful to watch them work. Yeah. So any theories as to the nature of the burn or this distress signal now that we have more information than we did last week? It has to be a tie in we've forgotten about already. Or something that uh, has not existed yet. Uh, and it's going to be new. Uh, I feel like at this point in the show, yeah. though, introducing something new is not the way to go. But what do I know next week? Who knows? It could be the USS Flim Flam uh, from, <laughs> from the Temporal War uh, stuck here. And it's accidentally causing everything to blow up. Maybe it's the USS Cerritos. <laughs> <laughs> No, the Enterprise. It's another Enterprise. It's another Enterprise. Or, you know, 
I'm uh, speaking of it being another enterprise that reminds me of uh, temporal paradoxes, like in all good things. What if the USS Discovery encounters a discovery with a highly evolved AI and they realize, oh, that's our ship a thousand years from now. We need to send our ship into the past. I've thought about that too, especially with the allusion to like the, the short, um, the short track that had discovery just empty, um, sitting somewhere, um, that, that I thought of as well. Um, I, I think the one thing that stands out to me is like something that I'm concerned about potentially with this whole concept is the burn and Burnham. And the similarities between the name and the whole trope uh, in Discovery of Burnham being the center of everything, uh, I really am hopeful that it has no tie to Michael Burnham, the character. Um, That would be my personal ideal is that it was just named that way for unrelated things. We've also had that talk too. I hope it's not that close because, oh man, I mean, maybe it's related to her but I hope the name isn't. <laughs> yeah. It seems like if there is a Federation distress signal coming from, I think it was, they said it was a nebula, then maybe there was some Federation ship there 150 years ago and they triggered something that caused the burn and caused them to be stranded there. So they don't know that all the other ships lost their dilithium too because they were the point of origin and nothing has reached back to them. So they trigger a distress signal thinking it was just them. And now it's been 150 years. There's probably nobody there anymore. It's just a derelict. But the signal's still being sent. Unless it's trapped in time, which, I mean, temporal uh, anomalies and whatnot. It, it's, my, my theory is that when they get there, the ship will be uh, like a, in its same condition, like it's not aging because it's trapped in like a time bubble or something. That's, that's my, my kind of like out there theory of what we might see. I still don't know what it is, but one of you just triggered a memory. I, I forgot. I thought about this when I first saw the episode. Uh, oh no, it's the whale probe. Oh. <laughs> Cause it had the sound, the sound effects of like, what's the ba- like the lowest thing. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm like, Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if there is some sort of a time bubble going on there, I want them to find the ship is helmed by Captain Morgan Bateson. And he's like, what do you mean? What's going on? This just happened, right? He finally gets uh, away from uh, the Bozeman and gets a new ship and he's stuck stuck in another time loop. (sighs) The luck of some people, you know? Yeah, that would really give us a a cause and effect for the burn. (laughs) Mm, I see what you did there. (laughs) Or, let's see, it it also reminds me of that amazing episode of Enterprise, which maybe you haven't seen yet, Jessica, so I don't want to spoil it, but maybe something that they do in the present can ripple back into the past and change it. I know what you're talking about. (laughs) Yeah, I I don't know if I've seen that one yet. Um, uh, We'll we'll see. I'm I'm about a season and a half away from the end. You're very yeah. close to what we're talking about. Yeah, you are in for some of the best Trek that's ever been told, in my opinion. Excellent. I'm looking forward to it. I've actually really enjoyed Enterprise so far. Yay, it's a good show. It's underrated. Uh, but Agreed. we are coming up on almost an hour, so let's go ahead and talk about Georgiou in this episode. They're still just dragging this on. Georgiou is one of my favorite mm-hmm. characters, but... Oh, come on. <laughs> Uh, the preview for the next episode, I think, gave us oh, some some uh, good inklings into it. But yeah, yeah. Uh, it's been dragged on a lot. Um, and uh, my, my feelings this episode is it was interesting. Giorgio's me- method of coping with this difficult pain is to just like throw murderous uh, statements at everyone around her. And I thought that was really interesting and enjoyable at first. And then it, it actually got a little old after a while. I was like, okay, okay, can we, uh, can we move on from the, I'm going to kill you and all your children. <laughs> but uh, I, I do like learning more about Giorgio, what the future knows about the mirror universe in general. 
Um, and I'm fascinated to see what was happening uh, in the up- upcoming episodes. But can we can we talk a little bit about the uh, the weird the weird thing that happened while they were doing that test? I put a picture in the bottom of the notes. I, I yeah, I, I talked about it on Twitter. I think it what it projects is something some weird space time anomaly is happening uh, with Shorjo, but I think it was trying to say future tech or also trying to say the future tech can't cope with this major distress. Cause, cause we just saw her get covered with a shell of future tech covering while they scan her. And I think the weird thing with her face is supposed to be the scan going haywire, but something is severely wrong. Yeah. My, my, moment was like, wait, is she a hologram? <laughs> Which I don't think is the case, but uh, I couldn't, like the way that the effects were done here, I was like, that, what? Uh, that that was something people had hypothesized, because right, because the scene where we first saw her just staring up into the distance was after she was talking to Glasses Guy uh, and the interaction with the holograms. And she even mentioned to one of the holograms, are you a hologram? Doesn't know he's a hologram. So maybe I hope it's not where they're going with it. Well, I will say that I just looked up Memory Alpha for the character of San S A N because I had the subtitles on for that flashback, and that's the name that Georgiou is screaming in her flashback. And all that Memory Alpha says is San was an individual from the Mirror Universe. <laughs> but it also says that San first appeared in the Discovery novel Die Standing, which just came out this past July. I haven't read this book. I haven't read the synopsis. But this one sentence, it says, This novel answers the question, What, if anything, would stop Emperor Georgiou from rebuilding her regime? Oh. So maybe that's insight. And that ties in a little bit to one of my impressions of her in this episode, which was there were multiple moments where I expected her to exert physical violence on members of the Discovery because we know she's capable of it. And her morals, I don't think, would prevent her from doing it. But there were times when she was confronted, and especially when Culber said, why don't we find a quiet place to talk? I'm like, that is not the sort of invitation that the Emperor would respond to. She's like, no, let's talk here. Punch to the face. (laughs) And that didn't happen. So I don't know if she is worn down and tired by what's happening to her. I don't know if she's growing to respect her crewmates, which is what they are at this point. But it's it was a surprise to me how she responded, and not in an out of character way. Just oh, there's some there's more happening here than I realized. I would agree with that. I think um, the way, like I mentioned earlier, like the way that uh, Giorgio copes is definitely more like insulting like violent phrases and stuff but it seems like underlying there's more than just i care about burnham um and i it it, i really want to see more of like how georgia is growing into this new world i think uh, i'd like to see some uh, episodes focusing on just that um i'm also a big fan of david cronenberg being in star trek now That's Glass's guy, if you were Uh aware. Uh Uh (laughs) You think we'll see more of him? Um, I don't know if I want to spoil... (laughs) Oh, well, I haven't seen seen the preview for next week yet, so... I guess we'll keep that off to the side. Okay, well, what we can do before we wrap up, though, is what we do know about Giorgio and Mirror Universe... Uh, she strongly cares about Michael for some reason. We found out that the mirror universe has been diverging from uh, the prime universe uh, for a long time. And uh, Georgia was connected to something, San, someone named San. Uh, And so somehow all those three things are related. Like she's connecting to Michael in a way that I'm guessing it has to do with what she lost in San. And because even here, we saw she was about when Discovery went to Red Alert, she immediately went, oh, no, this is Michael's doing. I have to go. And that's when Culber stopped her. Uh, she was going to go try to help Michael yet again. So she mm-hmm. has this d- drive, this need, this desire to come to Michael, make sure Michael is okay. And yet when Burnham went to her a few weeks ago and said, you can trust me, 
Georgiou said, I remember another Burnham saying I could trust her, and look how that turned out. Uh, it's just lashing out because she's in pain again. I mean, just lashing out because of Georgiou, too. Right. Uh, I think even Michael kind of felt like that, okay, mom, kind of like roll <laughs> eyes look. And that even happened here. And I was like, I killed my mother. Like, no, you didn't. <laughs> I, know. I, I know. Like, it was so predictable. They both said that line at the same time. And Michael's like, no, you didn't. And so I'm. it's interesting to me that maybe Georgiou is not as terrible a person as she wants us to believe, which surprises me because I've, she's fooled me. I've always thought she is exactly as bad as she seems and maybe even worse. Yeah. Could be That's my, I mean, you don't get to be, you don't get to be empress without being ruthless and terrible. So the impression I've always had is she's ruthless and terrible, but you're right in that it gives the sense that she's not quite the same person that we all expected. So I just, I just want to see more. I want to understand this background a little bit more. And you know, the other brief exchange uh, or threat that was revealing to me was when she said to Culber, if I had time, I would poison your children. And Culber said, if I had time, I would have children. I was like, oh, I guess, you know what? Now that I'm saying it, that makes me think of your comment about him being a space dad, all the more relevant. And since he Mm -hmm. doesn't have time to have his own children, he's sort of taken on that role with Adira. Oh, that makes sense. Uh-huh. I really love Culber this season. I just they've they've given him so much room to to actually grow and express who he is because we hadn't seen much other than a little bit in season one. Well, you know, this is the first season in which he has not been at least partly dead. <laughs> <laughs> well, he might be dead on the inside. We don't know. I, I think he has a soul or whatever passes for it in the future. I actually agree. <laughs> So there's one more thing, at least, that I want to say, which, and we sort of brought this up before, but I really want to go to Starfleet Summer Camp. Dang it. But, you know, that does bring to mind that Rin said, oh, if you want to scare kids, you tell them they're going to Starfleet Summer Camp. And Bree, you've been suspicious of this future Federation, and maybe there is some truth to these horror stories that people tell each other about the Federation. Some truth or perceived truths. I mean, he even says, like, Federation help always comes with a cost. Like, what has the Federation done in the last 150 or more years? Uh, that, that, uh, I, uh, I don't know, but even, even, uh, last week, uh, they're like, does this Federation who you think they are kind of thing? Mm-hmm. And that's definitely in my mind for sure. I mean, like, a thousand years, like, think about where, like our society was a thousand years ago, like definitely, you know, morals and, and motivations change in that time. And could my, my big question is, is the Admiral uh, playing on discoveries, crews, naivete to some sort of nefarious end um, or misleading end that that's what I'm, I'm super curious about given, given all these rumors about, Starfleet in the Federation. I don't know that the Admiral would be intentionally nefarious. I think he is a product of his time, just like our society was a thousand years ago. And so we may see him making a call that Discovery is shocked by and disagrees with, but the Admiral's just like, look, we are stretched thin. This is all we have. This is what we have to do to survive and that may not jive with discovery which comes from an era of plenty uh yeah i guess extending on that like here we have the future federation who only goes to help where perceived anyway is to go to help where uh something that's important directly to the federation even if that's not how the federation feels it could be how everyone else feels when you get this benevolent thing who's trying to help uh basically triage and uh, they're only helping the people who are, quote-unquote, most important at the moment. Uh, so I could see why planets would feel like, okay, uh, I guess they're more important than us right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and I, I guess with, with that whole like, idea of things having changed, um, that my impression of the Admiral's uh, response to Burnham's insubordination that it has been like, a little light, like I would imagine he would have been 
you know, a little bit more firm and a little more angry and more, um, let's have a, um, a trial and discommendation mm-hmm. or whatever. I, so maybe because of that same attitude of like, we're spread thin, uh, or things have just changed. Our values are slightly different that that's why his reaction has been as to me perceived lighter than, uh, than I think it should have been. Yeah, it, I think there is still a lot to be revealed and a lot to be learned about this future that the discovery has found itself in. You know, yes. one more thing I want to say about not necessarily the future, but just the pacing of discovery is I feel like they're alternating where they focus. Like Georgiou and Adira seem to show up in every other episode. You know, we didn't, you know, Georgiou's flashbacks last occurred two weeks ago when they went to rescue Book. And then last week, we didn't see anything about that. And none, almost nothing from last week, except for obtaining that Vulcan data, mattered this week. You know, I, and I feel like I wish there was a little bit more consistent continuity where if they are going to give us this plot thread one week, that it comes up the next week, too. I mean, they did kind of touch on the Vulcan data in that they identified the the origin of the burn. Right. Um, that's why I'm saying that's the only thing from last week that right. mattered this week. I, I agree. Um, I think it's a choice they're making with the pacing and I, I'm mixed on it. I agree with you. I, I'd like to see more continuity and less, less the, the dangling of like the future uh, episode um, treat to, to get you to keep focusing or keep watching you know, in upcoming weeks, I just like to see more. Here's the intro. Here's the resolution. Right. I mean, the, the plot threads we have from this week are what is happening to Georgiou? What is that Federation ship that's in the nebula? That's the origin of the burn. And, you know, why do we recognize the distress signal as a song? And if the past few episodes have been any prediction, then we probably won't get answers to any of that next week. Next week will be something entirely different. And then two weeks from now, they'll come back and say, oh, yeah, remember all those things we did two weeks ago? <laughs> Here are the answers to that. <laughs> um, anyway. Well, I think that covers almost everything this week. I know that we, especially the three of us, we all love Star Trek and we all love, we're all very detail oriented. So we could talk about this episode or Discovery or Star Trek or Ages and Eons. And I think the best alternative that we can come up with that's realistic is, Jessica, we just need to have you back on the show. Uh, I'm I'm happy to be here anytime you'll have me. Yay. All right, come back in an hour. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I can make that happen. Just let me get more coffee and we'll be good. <laughs> For those brief moments when you're not on Transporter Lock, where can our listeners find you online? Uh, on Twitter, I'm at The Punder Woman. Um, I, my website is jessicajanik.com. That's J-A-N-I-U-K. I know it's a weird last name. Um, uh, I am on Facebook though. I'm trying to limit my, uh, use of it at the moment. Um, so I think those places are probably the best. You can also look at the connections page on my website and there's lots of different links that you can use to find me there. Awesome. And we'll include those links in the show notes at transporterlock.com until next time. Hit it. Execute. Wait. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes and keep your hailing frequencies open by following us on Twitter at TransporterLock or subscribing to our podcast and email newsletter at TransporterLock.com.